Welcome to another edition of the Black Coalition of Fernando County Student Roundtable Podcast. Adam, a quick question for you being, you know, kind of our history guy here. Um, Why do you feel we even needed another movement? Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, when you look at the history that, you know, back in the 60s, I believe it was 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed um, or what have you, it seems as though maybe there would have been a little bit of residue. Um, but that should have been kind of uh, perhaps the end of the fight. But here we are, you know, dozens and dozens of years later, decades later, seemingly still fighting the exact same fight. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And why do you feel like, um, you know, it, it did not necessarily end with the civil rights movement, um, but that was almost the beginning of an ongoing fight that we are still in? Uh, Historically, our country, even when the majority of people want change, historically, our country has not done well with a lot of change all at once. You start getting a lot of pushback. And the pushback usually brings along with it uh, violence. And then the opposition usually is able to start painting the other side as being violent themselves. Um, and then your average American tends to get, uh, you know, a little burned out, I guess would probably a way to put it, uh, historically, with whatever movement's going on. Uh, they feel like they're constantly hearing about it. And then, you know, if there's nothing being done, it's not being fixed. So why are we still focusing on it? And then uh, historically in the 1870s and then again in the 1970s with both the movements there, you ended up getting economic recession, which ended up causing uh, in the 1870s depression, actually. Uh, and people start focusing more on their their pocketbooks rather than the systemic changes that were needed. Um, so you you have a combination of that, along with the fact that with Reconstruction you get a complete failure to actually make that last. With the Civil Rights Movement, it never goes all the way through, especially in the economic areas where it's needed the most. And so if we don't actually fix the underlying issues that are there and we just sweep it under the rug, you're going to get these issues coming back again and again and again and again. So you get that pushback of, uh, well, if we just don't talk about it, it'll go away. If we stop harping on it, it'll go away. And we have all this evidence to show that that's not what happens, that when you don't talk about it, when you don't do something about it, it just festers and it gets worse. But we still have that mentality as a nation overall to try to sweep it under. A uh, very poignant answer there. Um, I uh, I couldn't help but think, you know, being that years and years have passed, you know, since the civil rights movement, um, you know, a lot of the the bigots and racist uh, racist men and women from that generation have died and are simply, you know, no longer here on earth. But somehow their ideology, that same hatred you know, that same way of thinking uh, still lives and breathes 
in uh, some of their ancestors, uh, some of their um, children and grandchildren. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, you know, we are still having, you know, the, the same conversations, the same type of fight. And, uh, you know, a lot of people try to contend, you know, uh, in like Adam mentioned, in their effort to kind of sweep it under the rug, they say, oh, well, look how far we've come. Obviously, you know, if we've elected uh, a black president, surely racism is gone. Uh, surely there's no more bigotry and hatred because, I mean, you know, no one is being attacked with dogs or, you know, fire hoses. And, you know, it's, it's not nearly as bad as it was. You know, we're fine. We're doing great. But in all actuality, I think we're just seeing it in a different form. It's the same spirit. It's the same energy. Uh, but it's just manifesting itself in a different way. Um, and to uh, Shantina's point, technology is also playing a big part in that. Um, you know, there's always been police brutality. Uh, and I say this without any disrespect to George Floyd or Maude Arbery or any of the, the victims that we've had to actually see brutally killed via some type of video. Um, but, you know, that type of thing was already going on. Uh, it's just that it was not being filmed. But now that it's in front of us and that we're seeing it, uh, I think, you know, the ones that are quote unquote woke, uh, as Shantina said, you know, we're starting to see, wait a minute, we've we've got a lot of work to do here. Um, it's uh, I, Sorry, it's economics, too. Uh, the Those who were children during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, they're the, you know, the grandparents now in many of those situations. And poverty is a multi-generational thing to get out of for almost all individuals that are part of it. So you've got children today who are only just now starting to see themselves maybe rise up a little bit into the middle class or at least the higher parts of the, the working class uh, because of some of the changes that were made back in the, the 50s and the 60s. And the underlying problem there too is even though segregation is no longer something legally enforced, from an economic standpoint, you look at places like Brooksville, Brooksville is still very much segregated. It's just done through uh, economic choice now today. So certain individuals can't afford to move out and then individuals with money don't want to move in. Uh, you're finding it with gentrification in neighborhoods. You're still seeing it with, you know, there's the choice of where people choose to live and where they choose to go to school. Uh, our schools today around the country are more segregated now than they were when segregation was actually a legal thing. Wow. That's so true, oh. Adam. The high school that I went to, that they were desegregating, that, that they were desegregating, that had the Confederate flag and the rebel. The school is predominantly black now. So I graduated in 84 and here we are in 2021 and it's just reversed. Yeah. It's just reversed. Um, can I yeah. say something else that, that you made me think of, Ty? When Please, we're talking right about ahead. the civil rights movement, we had the leaders, we had the Malcolms and the Martin Luther Kings, but one of the differences with the Black Lives Movement, and I think because of the advent of the technology and such, it's more of everybody's their own brother's keeper. Children are turning in their parents. I mean, boyfriends and girlfriends are turning on each other because they all are feeling that there's some sort of accountability and they don't want to be the next Karen. So I think it's moving forward and advancing a little bit further because we are all seeming to realize we are literally 
in this ocean together. We may not be on the same boat, but if we can impact and help each other progress, then we're helping the country as a whole. And we're helping the world as a whole. You know, those comments were, were fantastic and absolutely necessary. Um, I want to shift just a little bit and students get ready because we're coming back to you all. We're giving you a, a little extended break here, but we're definitely coming back to you. But Pastor Alex, where is the church in all of this? What is the role of the church? Um, and we, we understand, you know, we're, we're not here to force, you know, our religious beliefs or views onto anyone. Uh, but for those of us who are Christians, for those of us, those of us who are a part of uh, a church, um, you know, what is the role of the church in the midst of this type of crisis, this type of racial injustice and unrest? And uh, what is your assessment of the church uh, as far as their performance? Are they up to par? They need to make some changes. And if so, you know, what needs to be done? That's a great question. Unfortunately, throughout history, the church has been usually the driver of, of injustice. Um, you see that all the way throughout slavery. You see that even beforehand. Um, and I think today, uh, specifically uh, with evangelicalism, and that's a lot of the different Protestant faiths, there's a huge divide between black and white churches. The, the white church um, I think it's very clear it's the white evangelical Protestant Christianity that is probably um, the most vocal against standing up for racial injustice. And that is a huge failure. That is a massive failure. The black church is polarized now to the point where it's hard to even worship together because how can my white brothers and sisters not understand what's happening? How can they not understand that the policies and the their voice and their vote and the way that they're acting is only seeking to further uh, uh, promulgate injustice. So how has the church been doing? I would say as a whole, the church has been failing miserably. Um, but there, of course, are bright spots. And that's the bright spots are the individual churches that are doing things about this. Um, I, I don't want to necessarily speak about my church, but I've been trying to highlight um, some from some different organizations. Um, this over Black History Month, we've been dealing with the underlying issues of racial injustice, which is social inequality. Um, so we've been dealing with three topics we dealt with was economic inequality, racial um, injustice, as well as views on, on health care and, and how even unequal access to health care, um, that these are things that are the structural issues that le lend towards um, just a uh, systemic issue with, with racial injustice. And so I think that there are organizations that are dealing with this. There are Christian organizations that are standing up and saying that social inequality is an issue that Christians must be addressing. There are Christian organizations that are standing up and advocating for healthcare policy that is fair uh, for for everyone. And so I think that churches, um, I don't think we're going to reform all of Christianity. We've seen that throughout history that Christians are going to continue to um, unfortunately not act the way that they're, they're called to. But what we need to do is highlight 
and celebrate the churches and the organizations within Christianity who are willing to stand up and to, to say that there are issues, we must talk about them. Wow. Could not agree more. Um, and, you know, hats off to you for being willing uh, to kind of speak truth to power there, uh, because I know several pastors who are amazing preachers and teachers of the word of God, um, but they are not willing to say some of the things you just said, uh, particularly with regards to the shortcomings of the church as a whole. So uh, that took courage. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, one of my favorite parables uh, from the Bible is the story of uh, the Good Samaritan. Um, and I'll just say really quick, you know, the Bible says that um, a man was uh, headed down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. Um, and, you know, they stripped him and, and robbed him of his clothes and, and everything that he had and left him on the side of the road. Um, and uh, I believe it says a priest came by, a Levite came by. These are religious people. Um, and they, they, you know, they took a look at him and kept going, uh, but a Samaritan came, um, and, you know, the Bible says they, they, the Samaritan bandaged his wounds, took care of him, you know, took the time to first get off his own animal, yeah. right? It doesn't say what, what the Samaritan was on. He could have been on a donkey or a camel, but either way, what I always take from the story is that he came down from an elevated place. And, and, and got on the level of the man who was hurt and began to pour in oil and wine into his wounds and bandage him up. And then he puts that man on his own beast. And so he says, basically, I'm willing to switch places with you. I'm going to put you now on the elevated place where I was because you have fallen among thieves and you need to be here more than I do. And I think until the church starts to have that mindset that we have to, you know, not just come by on our beast, yeah. our donkey, our camel, our horse and reach down, but actually get down and be willing to lift up, uh, you know, whatever group, whether it be blacks or Latinos, you know, uh, battered women, lift up that group that has fallen among quote unquote thieves. Um, and then it, it even goes on to say that he, you know, he put the man in a nice hotel and told the, the, the innkeeper, hey, take care of him. I have, I have other things I've got to do. And I think that's where the church is also drop, dropping the ball. The church feels like, yes, this is an issue, but hey, I was on a journey and I've got, I've got something I've got to do. I've got other places I've got to go. So there's nothing else I can do right now. But the man says, the, the Samaritan says, hey, even though I'm, I'm on a journey and I do have to be somewhere, I want you in my place to take care of this man. And when I come back through, if there's anything that I owe, I'll be glad to pay. Yeah. And to me, I, that is, that is complete ministry. That's, that's complete love versus partial love that the church has been dealing out. Go right I, ahead. If now. I could speak to that, I actually preached on that specific uh, parable yesterday. Uh, and the reason I spoke on that is because the reason that Jesus told that parable, it says a law expert was testing Jesus and asked him, you know, you know, um, who's my neighbor. And then it said he was seeking to justify himself. And literally the whole story comes because the law expert 
was trying to find out what are the delimitations of who I have to care about and who I don't. And so the question is what Jesus was turning around and saying, you know, you are asking, you are trying to put walls up and to say, where are the limits of where I need to care for others? And then he, of course, used this as an example to say, who was the one? And then, of course, the law expert says, well, the one that showed mercy. The point being that, yeah, I would say for Christians, we often try and say, where are the limits to where I have to show love? Where are the limits to who I have to care about? Where are the limits of issues I have to talk about? Uh, Where are the limits of what we can just sweep under the rug and ignore? And I think that that's where Jesus says, go and do likewise, which is to showing mercy. Beautiful. Yes. Awesome. That's amazing. We've heard um, Adam share with us, uh, I'm sorry, Alex, Pastor Alex share with us the church's role. Uh, we've heard uh, about how we need to kind of educate the uneducated. And, um, you know, we've had Adam's perspective uh, with regards to our schools and things of that nature and, and you know, what needs to be taught. Um, but I wanted to ask you all, what is the responsibility of young people your age um, who are still in school, um, but, you know, maybe, you know, they kind of, they see what's going on, they're aware of, of what's going on, uh, but they're not sure of how to get involved, or maybe they just don't want to because they feel like, hey, it's not my problem, it's not affecting me. You know, what would you all say to young people uh, who are kind of on the sidelines, and what is what is their responsibility to bring about significant change in this uh, in this particular time and movement? Uh, let's start with uh, Miranda. Um, how I don't know, because how I always thought of it was, it's better to it's to be the change in the world. You want to be the change that you want to see, and if you're acting on that, it might not make a huge difference at that time, but you're gonna know that you are you are a factor in stepping in the right direction and it's you are stopping the problem in its tracks so i would say to just be courageous with that because i know for me personally it's just like talking to people sometimes about it's having those uncomfortable conversations that are going to make the difference and that's that's what i always say to myself you have to get past the feeling of being uncomfortable and just keep on going with it it's not something that you you might, want, you might not want to do that on a Wednesday afternoon, but it's a fact that you know that you are the reason for equality and justice. And that's what I think, because me being uncomfortable for, what, 15 minutes is nothing compared to justice. And that's why I think it's putting the bigger picture first. Sure, Absolutely. Victoria, uh, if you would chime in and kind of build off of that and, you know, even if you'd like to mention some practical ways for uh, students your age to, to get involved or uh, hold each other accountable. Um, I believe students can get involved by expressing, um, you know, being anti-racist on social media. I mean, we all have it, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, it takes two minutes to spread awareness and to also educate yourself. Anyone can read posts now or to read an article about, you know, the injustices that people face on a day-to-day basis. And then also um, explaining to people what to do in situations where 
they are witnessing someone being racist and how to denounce that or how to make a space that is safer for all individuals of all identities. Um, because, you know, like Miranda was saying, you know, be 15 minutes of being uncomfortable is nothing compared to, you know, a lifetime of experiencing discrimination and bigotry. My biggest thing that I've uh, taught people online, you know, because I've always had people around me say that they don't see my color. And I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> you see my color, but I need you, even if you don't want to, even if people are like, I don't see color, I don't care if you're black, white, green, or purple, I need them to understand that, yes, you do see my color. And I need you to respect my color, respect my cultural background, my heritage, and things like that. Teen Vogue has made drastic changes from their beginning. Like, I recently posted a, you know, a thing, and it was, like, one of uh, their co-directors of, like, Teen Vogue said, like, why is Teen Vogue getting political, you know? And it was, like, to tell a teenager that she should stick to lip gloss instead of the world around her is, you know, disgusting. It's, you know, disrespectful. It's irresponsible, even, to do that. And, you know, we all can take a part in something and make the world a better place if we start paying attention to more of these issues. And we still also have the power to share that now more than ever. So. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Let's uh, let's head over to our uh, our friend Mason. Um, well, what I think is that even though you're young, you can still do something like, for say, even though I'm black, I still am a wildlife warrior and I'm known across um, many areas in Hernando County and even Florida. I've been on the news many times and I just want to prove that you can still do something you can still um, be something no matter what your age. I started whenever I was 11 and I started um, making a change. And just because you're black, Asian, um, any of that, you can still do anything. You just have to work for it. Don't care about what the other people say. Don't care about what they say about you. You are awesome, and you don't have to um, worry about that. You can do anything. Thank you so much for that. That's great encouragement. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's going to, uh, to help quite a few high schoolers uh, and also maybe even some adults. Let's head over to uh, uh, our, our friend Algenae, certainly. You know, last but not least, um, from a college standpoint, what would you say to your peers? Um, and what is their responsibility as they're getting ready to, uh, you know, live, live their lives? I would definitely have to say that we have to prepare ourselves to speak out. Um, there was mentioning of social media. I definitely am proud to use my social media to speak about whatever, whoever, and whatever it is that I choose to speak about. I'm constantly advocating for any marginalized or my minority community that I can, it's our job as 
the youth to continue pushing on the stories. Like I see myself when we listen to these stories that um, Patricia gave to us and Shawnita gave to us, I could place myself into their stories in my own life. And these are situations that happened so long ago, but I could place myself into these stories and say, that kind of happened to me when I was a little girl. That also kind of happened to me when I was experiencing these things. So we have to continue to push the stories and elevate it even higher. So that way when the younger generation that's even younger than me, even younger than the other students on the round table come along, they have the ability to listen to these stories as well and not fall victim into a lot of the things that we all have already experienced. So it's important that, especially when it's coming to the college students, which I already see so much of it, and it makes me smile. Um, I'm finally at an institution where I see other people who look like me, and it just brings me so much joy because I'm not afraid to say what I want to say and have someone else raise their hand and say, that happened to me too, and this is how it made me feel. Um, Adam had mentioned that economically black people were placed in these environments where they had no choice but to survive the way that they have. You know, when you see neighborhoods like Brooksville and then you see neighborhoods like Spring Hill and they have these gated communities and they have expensive grocery stores and things like that. And then you look over at Brooksville and there aren't really any gated communities. The neighborhoods are a little, they're not really upkept. It's not really taken care of. And that is because of what's happened in the past. But to know that each of us play a role in providing them with some type of inspiration to know that you don't have to be what you come from makes a lot of the difference. So speaking out, having those conversations, no matter how you feel, you're gonna make someone else feel, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's scary. Of course, no one wants to hear about what I've experienced and what Shanita's experienced and what Patisha's experienced. No one wants to hear that they've been affected that way. But look at what they've become from that. They did not let that define them. They're in positions where they are living their best life despite what they have gone through. So I feel that if we all use our challenges to push us forward, we can, we can do anything. And it shows to the younger generation as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. The episode that Al Janay, um was a part of um, that detailed the tragic lynching and murder of Mr. Wallace Jordan. Now, Al Janay, you had the opportunity to have um, a very powerful discussion um, and for those who have not had the opportunity to listen to this episode just yet, we will go ahead and warn you now. Um, the details that we're about to get into and share are a bit graphic um, and you know, could trigger some emotional distress and PTSD even for some people. Um, so you know, if you need to go ahead and fast forward or potentially end the podcast at this point, we understand uh, but we did want to talk about the tragic lynching and murder of Mr. Wallace Jordan. Uh, Al Janay, you had the opportunity uh, to speak with Mr. Jordan's grandson, uh, Mr. Frank Burns, who is doing an amazing work in, you know, investigating. And he has even gone to great lengths um, to get uh, his grandfather's story out there. And he's even made a documentary 
And uh, so you, you got to speak with Mr. Frank Burns, uh, Mr. Jordan's grandson, and you also got to speak with Walter Jordan. And I thought it was very interesting. Uh, Walter kind of sat quiet throughout the entire interview. Um, but when he did speak up towards the end, it was so impactful and it really just hit me like a ton of bricks. But, you know, he shared that he was the 12th child of Mr. Wallace Jordan. And uh, because of this horrible tragedy, he was never afforded the opportunity to meet his father. Um, he was not even born, uh, you know, when this happened. Uh, but Algernay, if you would share with us a little bit about this experience. I know it was, you know, tough to discuss with the, the two gentlemen and it may be, even be tough for you now, but if you can just share a little bit about uh, that story and, uh, you know, how, how it made you feel during the interview. Yes, the interview was, um, I had definitely had to brace myself for the story ahead. I knew when Atia came to me and, and sent me the synopsis of who my interviewer was going to, my interviewee was going to be. I knew that I was getting myself into a pretty deep story. Um, once I started to interview him, I found myself learning so much more about the area we live in and also the stories that no one knows about, the stuff that no one's talking about, the things that no one is aware of. I learned that the story is long gone, but through the love of a grandchild, someone he has never met, he's never met his own grandfather, but yet here he is doing everything in his power to get justice and make sure that everyone else is aware of what happened to his family and how it's affected them. So basically a lot of the information that was given to me, you're going to hear it sounds like a setup. I'm not even going to say sounds like it was. It was a setup. It was a planned type of scheme, very sleazy, very dirty, behind someone else's back type plot that was put together by these deviants in the neighborhood simply because the shop owner where he worked at, where Wallace Jordan worked at, felt that he stared at his wife the wrong way. So he's working two jobs at that to support his family of 12. And the neighborhood protested and contested that he was a very nice man. He never drank. He never did anything wrong besides go to work and come home and spend time with his family. There was no type of delinquency they saw within him. He was just an honest man. And once the story got around that he had stared at his shop owner's wife inappropriately, the entire neighborhood, they did not believe that. They were like, no, not Wallace Jordan. He would not do anything like that. That's just not like him. Um, but the story, it spread. And of course, once you hear the, the sort of mini breakdown of the story, and then you hear that like actual events from the grandson and the son, it's it's crazy because what was explained to me was that the people who went ahead and lynched him and castrated him and put him near the railroad tracks because he looked at the shopkeeper's wife actually made some of the other black neighbors participate in 
the lynching and grabbing of this man from his home while his children and his wife were there. They made these people participate in this activity because they told them, if you do not help us get him out of his home, if you do not help us get our hands on him, we'll kill your families too. So they had no choice but to participate in this act that they did not want to have any parts of. They didn't, I'm more than sure they did not want to have anything to do with killing their own neighbor or friend, but they had no choice and they were placed into that situation. So once that was told to me, I, I had to sit back a little bit because just imagine being forced into a situation that you don't want to be a part of because of someone else's evil deeds. So they get him out of his home um, and he comes out. He's saying he did not do this. No one wants to hear it. No one's listening to anything he has to say. He's lynched, dragged to the railroad tracks, castrated, and they left him there, expecting the train to hit him. They didn't even set him up properly so it wasn't really thoroughly planned out they just placed him there in a, the wrong way the train conductor actually saw him and stopped the train and got out and called the local authorities and let them know there is a man here and he he's in pretty rough condition i don't even know if this man is alive the police arrive oh yeah no this is nothing he yeah he's drunk he's a lunatic he's got so many mental illnesses it's not our fault. He's just there, which everyone in the community knew was not true. As I mentioned, the neighbors, the friends, the other people within the community all agreed that Wallace was not that type of individual. He did not drink. Uh, the grandson mentioned that the only thing his grandfather ever drunk was Coca-Cola with some peanuts in it, which was a very popular drink during that time, because I recall my grandmother actually telling me that that was something that she witnessed other people drinking back then. It was just something that they did. They put peanuts in the Coke. And that was the only thing that he drunk. Other than that, it was just water. So for them to make up this fabrication that he was a drunk, a lunatic, mental illness, just to cover up what they had actually done. So they bring him to the coroner in Brooksville but the scene happened in another county. They bring him over to the coroner in Brooksville. Now, he's obviously been lynched. He's obviously been castrated. He's obviously been shot in the head also. They shot him in the head. So there is a clear gunshot wound in his head. They bring him to the coroner, and the coroner examines him, but rules it off as a train accident, that he was killed in an accident by the train. Now I see all your faces and I know you all are thinking, how could that be possible if he's been shot in the head, lynched and castrated? How can a train do all of those things to this man? Especially if the train conductor already confessed and said, I never touched this man with my train. I stopped long before I got to him. I'm the one who called it in. But they still ruled it off on his death certificate as an accident. So that everyone in the town played a giant role in this scheme to basically murder this man, but rule it off as an accident. And through talking to the grandson and the son who, once he told me that he had never met his own father, that he was still being carried by his mother while all of this had happened, it just broke me down. And he's obviously trying his best to remember what he can to have what he does have about his father, but you can never 
replace what he has lost. And it just broke my heart. It really did. And they also, they also added that he is currently trying to find out who exactly did this. You know, he's trying to go around town and ask who's responsible for this, who had put their hands into the situation and murdered my grandfather. And he's doing he's doing that to this day. He goes to neighbors homes and he's knocking on doors. But the answer that he constantly gets is that was so long ago. Why are we talking about it? Just leave it alone that if I I don't want to talk about that. Just leave it alone. It it already happened. He actually knocked on someone else's door and they informed him that if I tell you this, a lot of people are going to get into trouble. So that clearly indicates that something else is going on. But to see the strength that this family has, to see the ability to not give up in the fight that they have, especially the grandson, he has made a documentary. There's a petition going around to change the name of a park that is located in the county where he, his grandfather was killed, which is named after the man that they suspect actually went through with these actions and murdered their grandfather. He's trying to get the name of that park changed to Wallace Jordan Park. Just, it's a much deeper dive into a very tragic story. I gained so much knowledge and information and I learned so much it makes you really appreciate a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it was uh, really gut wrenching to to hear them describe the details, but I think what often gets lost in in translation um, is kind of the domino effect of not just the event uh, that happened, but the aftermath. You know, how does it affect then? the family, the children, um, the wife of this poor man, um, and then, you know, even down to his unborn son Mm -hmm. uh, who never had the opportunity to meet him. And, you know, it's interesting when we we hear the phrase systemic racism, um, you know, this this is the kind of thing that we're talking about because a lot of people will will argue you down that there is no such thing as systemic racism and it's a myth. But, you know, when you, you know, if you take a racist person and put them in a position of power where they have the ability to make a decision that directly affects the person or the group of people that they are against, well, now it has gone from being in case of individual racism to being systemic. And when you hear, you know, about the medical, and I'm sure you all will, will, if you haven't had the opportunity to listen, all of this is detailed in the episode. But when you hear about how the medical examiner is in on the cover-up, when you hear how the law enforcement agents don't do a detailed investigation, when you hear how there is no presence from even a a prosecutor uh, or someone wanting to investigate, Um, this is when we can say that we have concrete proof that these types of things are not just on an individual basis, but it is systemic in the the courts and in the systems that govern our daily lives. Um, And, uh, you know, it was really riveting to hear 
Um, and, you know, it unfortunately just made me think of things that still go on today. You know, maybe it's not a lynching, but, you know, when you see the horrible shootings, you know, of, you know, innocent black people by law enforcement officers, and then not just that event, like I said, but also the domino effect and, and the cover up that comes often behind it. Um, it's really, really sad to see that this same type of thing is going on today, which is, you know, why we have to stay in the fight and we have to continue uh, to make sure that, you know, what we're doing um, is, is not just us being a hamster on the wheel, you know, that we're not just doing this for show, but we're actually doing our best to make significant progress. Um, so, I just want to say to everyone here who's a part of the panel, uh, Pastor Alex Voigt, uh, we thank you so much for being with us. Um, Adam Maternowski, Shantina Mays, our student panel of uh, Mason Johnson, Victoria Sellers, Victoria Sellers, Miranda Mays, and Algenae Anthony. We can't say thank you all enough. Uh, for taking some time to have this dialogue and conversation with us. And to our listeners, uh, we do trust that you have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you know, it can be really tough to digest some of this, but uh, as uh, some of our students said earlier, if you will allow yourself to be uncomfortable for 15, 30 minutes and have these tough conversations, you know, you're going to be better for it on the other side. Uh, thank you to all of our special guests, Patria Dye, who's not with us here today, but our first special guest, Shantina Mays, uh, and also to Mr. Frank Burns and Walter Jordan. Thank you all for being a part of uh, this Black History series, Feel Our American Story. Uh, stay tuned uh, for updates and uh, events that are going to be coming from the Black Coalition of Hernando County. Uh, please follow the page on Facebook, uh, and then also uh, there is a website uh, that you all can uh, go to to get updates as well. Uh, just search the Black Coalition of Hernando County, and it will pop right up for you. Thanks again to everyone who is involved, uh, to our president, Mrs. Atia Spellman, uh, and uh, also uh, to uh, Dana Hines. Uh, who who has been working tirelessly behind the scenes. Thank you to you all. And uh, we appreciate everybody. Have a great evening. And uh, we will see you next time. The reason that black people are in the streets has to do with the lives they're forced to lead in this country. The great question in the country has been all the years that I've been living here and I was born here 43 years ago is what does a Negro want? And this question masks a terrible knowledge. I want exactly what you want. And you know what you want. I want to be left alone. I don't want any of the things that people accuse Negroes of wanting. I simply want to be able to raise my children in peace and arrive at my own maturity in my own way, in peace. I don't want to be defined by you. I think that you and I might learn a great deal from each other. If you can overcome the curtain of my color, it is easy to call
call me a Negro or a nigger. But in fact, I'm a man like you. I want to live like you. This country is mine, too. I paid as much for it as you. White means that you are European still. And black means that I'm African. And we both know, we've both been here too long. You can't go back to Ireland or Poland or England. And I can't go back to Africa. And we will live here together, or we'll die here together. 